0: Hello, you are watching The Jacobin Show, and I'm Jen Pan, um, before we get started today, I just want to quickly acknowledge two pieces of very good news. Number one is that the Jacobin channel hit 100,000 subscribers last Friday, so uh, that's amazing. Thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed to our channel, who has watched our videos, liked our videos. Um, And of course, thank you to our YouTube members, all of you combined, really make this channel possible. And, you know, getting to 100K, of course, means that our producer, Young Kale, gets a physical plaque in the mail from YouTube. He obviously uh, deserves it a lot. Um, He's been steering this channel from day one, and I think you guys all know that he's behind pretty much everything that happens on this channel. So uh, yeah, again, you know, thank you to all of you for watching, for liking, subscribing, and of course, thank you to Kale for doing Jacobin. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to quickly shout out is that I think, as you guys all know by now, a Staten Island Amazon warehouse um, won their union election last Friday against pretty remarkable odds. Uh, They're now going to be the first unionized Amazon location in the U.S., And I think that there's really a lot of hope that, you know, much like we've seen with the Starbucks unions, uh, this first Amazon union could kickstart a wave of other Amazon warehouses filing for union elections in the, you know, days, weeks, months to come. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because on today's show, I am actually going to be talking to Chris Maizano about the state of the labor movement right now and really how we should be thinking about it. Um, Because I think on the one hand, there There's a lot of understandable excitement and energy around these new unions and around, you know, strikes and labor activity in general. Uh, But I think it's important to remember that uh, this is all also happening at a time when union density is at the lowest it's ever been. Um, I think there's no question that the labor movement is still very much facing an uphill battle. So, um, you know, very excited to talk to Chris. He had some great comments about how we should really be thinking about these recent strikes and union elections in the context of organized labor more broadly. So that's coming up. Stay tuned for that. Um, for my part, I will be making my own comments about one of my favorite topics, which is the New Deal. Uh, if you guys didn't see this, Jon Stewart recently did an episode of his show where he was looking at systemic racism in America. And um, during the show, he repeated this, you know, very popular, very often trotted out line that the New Deal was racist. So I will be taking a closer look at those claims for my segment. That's coming up as well. Um, But before all that, I am talking to Jacobin columnist Ross Barkin. He has a new article out in the latest issue of Jacobin where he looks at the evolution of the Working Families Party and um, how the party's changes over the years have really influenced progressive politics in New York and elsewhere. So let's get to it. All right, we are now joined by Ross Barkin. He is a Jacobin columnist based in New York and the author of the book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York. We're going to be talking to Ross about his recent piece in the new issue of Jacobin, which is titled Working Class Politics Without the Working Class and is about the Working Families Party. So Ross, first of all, good to see you.
1: Good to be back. Very excited to talk WFP.
0: Indeed. Uh, So let's just dive in. Um, I think we should start by just sort of laying out what exactly the Working Families Party is. Uh, I I assume that a lot of viewers probably have a general idea of them as kind of a, you know, force in progressive politics, particularly in New York, but in a couple of other states as well. Um, But in particular, can you just sort of give a brief overview of how their fusion voting strategy worked and then Also, like how they formed alliances with labor unions in order to become this force in progressive politics in New York.
1: Sure. So the Working Families Party is a left wing or progressive third party that was formed in New York in 1998 and now exists throughout the country. Uh, But New York has always been a power base for WFP in part because it employs, as you said, a strategy or it takes advantage of something you're allowed to do in New York called fusion voting. So New York is one of the few states in America, very few, where a political candidate can run on multiple party ballots at once. So in New York state, you can run as a Democrat and a Republican at the same time. You can run as Democrat and Green Party, though the Green Party does not cross indoors. Um, You can also, there used to be a lot more third parties in New York that were not uh, so prominent, but we're really there to hand off votes to certain parties. You know, you could run as like Democrat and Independence Party or something like that. So we've always had fusion voting in New York. It dates back a very long time. And what WFP does to avoid the spoiler effect, they're a third party, but they always will cross endorse Democrats. It's very, very rare for a candidate to run only on the third party. WFP ballot line. Now, the WFP came into existence uh, very well intentioned to push the Democratic Party to the left. Now, this was the 1990s. The Democratic Party obviously was much more fiscally conservative than it is today, socially conservative as well. And it really was this idea that in New York, the Democratic Party had lost touch with its working class base. Labor unions were very involved in the foundation of WFP and played a very big role. That would change in the 2010s, but um, at its foundation, it was this sort of labor plus activist party, progressive activists and organized labor coming together to push the Democratic Party slowly leftward, and that was the strategy, and in many ways it was uh, successful.
0: Yeah. So uh, let's let's then dive into the meat of your article, because you sort of track the evolution of this strategy and of the Working Families Party over the last, I guess, two, two, three decades. So um, something you wrote in your article, which I thought was really interesting, is you say the Working Families Party in recent years has paradoxically become both stronger and weaker than it once was. Unspool that a little bit. What do you mean by this?
1: So a very interesting thing happened in the 2010s. You know, New York elects Andrew Cuomo, a conservative Democrat to say the least, as governor. He's very hostile to the progressive movement broadly. He initially is very hostile to organized labor as well, though that would change over time. And uh, one of the things Andrew Cuomo was committed to doing, really, from when he first came into office in 2011 was to effectively destroy the Working Families Party. Now, the WFP uh, was not powerful enough to defeat Andrew Cuomo, but it certainly was there to call him out for his various policy choices and to run candidates in the city council or state legislature that he didn't like. And so really in 2014, he uh, came to um, a lot of the big labor unions in the state and gave them an ultimatum. It's either me or WFP, and at the time, um, you had a lot of these sort of institutional aligned labor unions who both were friendly at WFP but needed to be on good terms with Andrew Cuomo because the governor of New York is incredibly powerful. If you're a public sector union, you bargain with him. And if you're a private sector union, you often depend on the business of the state. So- yeah. Cuomo said, "You know, you're gonna you're gonna choose me, or you're gonna choose WFP." Many of the big labor unions chose him, and this rupture happened around 2014, and then continued on a few years later, where unions slowly exited the Working Families Party. And on one hand, that allowed the Working Families Party to take more unabashedly progressive positions. The unions were more of a sort of like moderating influence in the sense that since they had their members to worry about, or they had. Uh, you know, uh, had to do collective bargaining, they didn't want to alienate uh, politicians in power. So the WFP would do things like not always endorse the most progressive candidate. They supported Cuomo in 2014, even after all of this, which was very controversial because Zephyr Teachout was running against him. So WFP itself was caught between two worlds of like its activist base and labor, which never want to go that far left, right? So in one sense, labor leaving was sort of purifying for WFP in one, sense, in one way. In the other way, though, it was a loss of real ground troops. It, it kind of was the beginning of, I would say, the Working Families Party detaching from its um, labor base yeah. um, and trying to figure out what would, what it would be, right? In 2016, WFP went all in on Bernie Sanders, and it was very clear they're going to be kind of this, you know, unabashedly progressive, maybe quasi-socialist about calling themselves Socialist Party, And an interesting thing I think happened later on, which I write about too, is around sort of 2018, 2019, 2020, WFP isn't quite sure where to go in the sense that you have the rise of the socialist left and you have kind of this like liberal left, sort of more identity-based left. And this really came to a head with Warren versus Bernie, where WFP, I'd argue, made a very bad decision to support Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. And that also um, created yet another kind of rift between uh, it's activist base where you had sort of socialist and left-line activists going with Bernie, and then you have kind of these sort of maybe more NGO types or nonprofit types going with Warren. Um, and I would say today the WFP, in one hand, is, is strong because they have a great brand – they're nationally known. They have a very effective fundraising list. Um, they are they are able to genuinely raise money for candidates. Mm-hmm. But I've argued over and over again, and they hate this. But I keep doing it because I think it's true. They function today effectively as a super PAC that helps pay for staff and coordinates with candidates. And this is very important why does WFP want a ballot line in New York so badly? When you are a political party in New York, you can coordinate directly with your endorsed candidate. So a super PAC, as we all know, you can spend all the money you want. You can't legally coordinate the campaign. WFP kind of gets the best of both worlds. They get to function, I say, effectively as a super PAC, spend, do IE, spend tons of money, but still hire staff for a campaign, still give strategy, Right. So I think it's still it's effective in a way, but it's not a classic political party. And I also think it does have a problem where it's not necessarily in touch with like a working class like black or Latino base or a white working class base. And some of its its endorsement decisions in the last few years, I would say, have been questionable.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about those endorsements for a second, because um, I guess the first question is, how important are they really? Right. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, you know, they endorse Warren, who did not move very far in the primaries at all. Um, you mentioned that, you know, they you you you, you know, have some questions about some recent endorsements. Maybe go into those a little bit and then talk about, like, what they what they tell us about the trajectory of the WFP and its base right now.
1: So. I I write a lot about WFP and DSA as well. And like one of the huge differences between DSA and WFP is that DSA is very uh, strategic and very, some would say parsimonious, I I, I think savvy as well, in who they endorse. DSA, Mm -hmm. certainly New York, I can say, can't speak as much to other states, but in New York runs a very small slate. Even now for the state legislature, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head, they're only endorsing a handful of assembly and state senate candidates, not many, under 10. Yeah. Um, yeah. WFP in every single cycle will endorse tons of candidates. I mean, they will run out a huge slate. It's almost like, you know, handing out candy. You get a WFP <laughs> endorsement. So, what does a WFP endorsement matter, right? If they are investing in your race, it can matter. Often it's a paper endorsement. Often it's just like, oh, you know, you may or may not have the ballot line. Again, the ballot line doesn't matter a ton for getting votes. There aren't that many, quote, WFP voters in actuality. It mat- the ballot line, like I said, matters to them because they get to function like a super PAC, but still coordinate with candidates. So I, I think in certain races they matter. I give the example of of the Queens District Attorney's race in 2019, where Tiffany Caban ran against the institutional candidate Melinda Katz, and Tiffany Caban, as a leftist insurgent, nearly won. And she nearly won in part because WFP was able to pump a lot of money into her campaign, hire staff, and provide sort of you know strategic advice, since they do have you know traditional kind of uh, you know, base of political operatives. So that was good. And that was helpful. And and that was a nice DSA WFP synergy. Now DSA has the volunteers. There aren't really a lot of WFP volunteers. Mm -hmm. They have activist groups they work with. They're kind of an umbrella organization for various NGOs, but there aren't like, there's not like an army of WFP people waiting to go knock on doors. They pretend there is. I don't think there really is. DSA has the army, but DSA isn't like a super PAC and they don't necessarily have like a national fundraising list they can easily tap into, though they've gotten much better at fundraising. But in terms of endorsements, yeah, I mean, the Warren endorsement was a total disaster, Um, did not hurt WFP from a PR sense. I think WFP has been very good at their kind of media strategy game where DSA and kind of the mainstream press will get hammered if they lose a race and you'll get like the think pieces. Is socialism over in America? Because like some city council candidate lost, right? Right. Whereas WFP can kind of take it on the chin a lot and they kind of breeze right forward. I mean, the the Warren, as as we know, we don't have to talk ad nauseum, but I mean, she did not win a single state, did not come anywhere close, hung out out in the race way too long uh, into Super Tuesday and really beyond sort of like this white, Professional class could not galvanize anyone. Um, and that that was WFP's like sort of prize campaign of the cycle. So nationally, they failed miserably on that front. Um, they've had a lot of successes down the ballot as well. And um, you know, then they've elected, you know, helped elect like a lot of city council candidates and state legislative candidates. They get involved in other states too, states without fusion voting. So They've got a lot of value. They also make curious choices. You know, I, I, The Pennsylvania Senate primary is a big one here where John Fetterman is clearly ahead. He is a fairly progressive candidate, a populist. You have Connor Lamb, who's like the moderate, right. and then Malcolm right. Kenyatta, who's like sort of this like anti-Bernie uh, identity progressive who WFP for some reason has endorsed, and he has really no chance of winning. Like he's pulling way behind he like over and over again throughout 2016 and 2020 was just pounding away Bernie Sanders, you Mm -hmm. know, on these sort of uh, identity or like Russia DNC talking point kind of based grounds. I mean, he's not really, he's not really a candidate that like a a national political party should be supporting. I would say also if they had their working class base, their labor base, I don't think labor unions would be supporting him either. So for Mm me, the the Kenyatta endorsement was was kind of an example of uh, both an endorsement that like a DSA type party wouldn't do, but then like the old WFP, which was very labor oriented, they would look at this race and probably just support Fetterman because he's the front runner. And that's what labor does. So that that endorsement to me is interesting, and I think is a misfire in the sense that he's not going to win, and if polls are correct, he will probably finish third or worse.
0: Right. So I guess that raises the question: like, do you see any path for the WFP to kind of revive its labor base um, and become an effective vehicle for working class politics in New York, in Pennsylvania, any in any state?
1: I, I think there's a path. I mean, I mean, I think this is a challenge for DSA too. I think all left leftist endeavors today. Um, have this challenge of kind of being able to merge with labor. Also, labor, you know, depending on the state, is not very strong. New York is unique, or yeah. New York does have a history and still kind of a um, a base of politically powerful labor. One challenge for WFP and for DSA is labor tends to side with incumbents. Labor is generally pro-status quo. There's always been this tension. This is nothing new. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I think on one hand, it's hard to do good progressive politics or left politics and be closely aligned with labor where either in certain states labor just is weak or in the case of New York, you have a mix of labor, right? You have like very kind of genuine progressive labor unions that really are on, I'd say the good fights most of the time. You have labor unions that in New York supported Republicans for years. 1199, the healthcare workers union, strong, strongest union in the state, massive union, tons of money. This union through 2016 was bankrolling Republicans in the state Senate. So that's a challenge too. I think for DSA and for WFP, um, I'd argue more for WFP because they don't even do a lot of, I would say, as much on the ground work um, in, in terms of like getting volunteers together, doing classic party building, you know, for WFP, it's like getting, getting in touch with that working class base. I think, I think you, I think I've seen with WFP, um, again, this like very, uh, overtly kind of, um, focus on, you know, lingo employed by highly educated activists. You know, I've, I've seen kind of this, you know, again, this Warren Warren of kind of, themselves, which has continued on post 2019, where it often feels like they're appealing more to online activists Mm -hmm. than to actual working class people who maybe have more moderate views on on certain issues. So I do think they need to think more strategically and, and more humbly too about. Being a, a working class party, right? Maybe you can't be a labor party because labor is going to do what labor is going to do. But being a working class party, and for DSA too, that that that's a central ch- challenge to not merely be a party that succeeds in kind of more y- younger or highly educated milieus, but to really branch out and do well in a lot of different environments. Um, but I think DSA is a bit more earnest about. The party building aspect. Mm I I don't know. I think for for me at least, what I see WFP is functioning a bit too much like this online fundraising list and Super PAC, and less like the uh, party that is trying to party build in different places.
0: Yeah. So maybe let's wrap up on this question of party building, right? Because, uh, you know, we're obviously a long way off from seeing a left labor party or, you know, let alone a socialist party in the US. Uh, but the the topic does kind of come up from time to time. What would that look like? How do we begin to build it? And I think that the analogy that is often invoked is the Tea Party, right? Like some people are like, well, could we use a kind of Tea Party strategy to take over the Democratic Party? Um, we don't actually hear a lot about the Working Families Party, I don't think, when the question, of party comes up, so maybe you know. I mean, you've already hinted at this, but is this a viable model? Is their model a viable model? Um, and and if not, you know, what exactly does a kind of left working class labor party need?
1: I think it, it, it's not a viable model in the sense that you're you're not going to get like a new party out of it. I think WFP's value is that it's it's a it's a organization that exists to assist when possible. Progressive candidates in some tough races, and they've got money to do it, and they've got manpower to do it, and that's a value. Are they building a political party? Not really. I am not sanguine on third parties in the US. I I think we've seen a kind of a long history of third parties. Getting crushed by the two main parties, being unable to compete in a, in a first past the post system. Right, um, right. so I, I, I believe the DSA strategy of, of co-opting the Democratic party line makes a lot of sense. And in New York, they've had real success in electing socialists to the state legislature and now to the city council who are genuine in their convictions, but happen to run and win as Democrats. And they do work with the party, but they also function as their own voting block in. The state legislature. So I think the most viable thing is probably a version of that Tea Party strategy where you just keep electing more socialist or left-wing candidates to office throughout America. I think state legislatures in general are fertile ground for this. These are low turnout races. They're not expensive races. You go outside of New York, they get even less expensive. There's this been this big obsession with the presidency, rightfully so. The Bernie campaign is very important, but I think what we've seen is You're only going to get so far with the president, but you can do a lot if you control legislature. You can do a lot if you control governor's mansion. I always use an example of Wisconsin, which, you know, tragically was once a very progressive state, a working class sort of democratic state, and now has swung right and for eight years was run by like an unabashedly right-wing governor who is very kind of out of touch. I'd say a lot of voters in the state, but managed to win and implement a far right agenda. And that's Scott Walker, of course. So I, I always say this, like the left needs to find its own Scott Walker, like find someone who can come in and govern as an unabashed leftist and do big things in a short amount of time. He crushed organized labor in Wisconsin rather quickly. yeah, um, yeah. Easier said than done for, for the left to do the reverse. But I do think thinking on the state level is very important. It's where the right wing has been for a long time. The left wing really has to get there. I do think DSA is working on that, certainly number of states, and and that work will have to continue.
0: All right. So again, Ross's article in the new issue of Jacobin is Working Class Politics Without the Working Class. I encourage you to check it out. We will link it in the description box below. Ross, thank you so much for your time. Good to see you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So as I mentioned, I will be getting to some comments on the New Deal in just a moment. But first, a message from our sponsor, Verso Books.
2: Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in April, you'll get these books. Scorched Earth Beyond the Digital Age to a Post-Capitalist World by Jonathan Crary, a polemic on resisting the digital world of late capitalism. Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics by Drew Pendergrass and Troy Vettis, a radical manifesto to address climate disaster and guarantee the good life for all. Passages from Antiquity to Feudalism by Perry Anderson, classic work in historical sociology. We Want Everything, a novel by Italian poet and activist Nani Balestrini, plus a bonus book, Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood to understand the historical context of Russia's war against Ukraine. Become a member today at VersoBooks.com.
0: One myth that just refuses to die is that the New Deal was racist. The most recent proponent of this claim was none other than Jon Stewart, who assembled a panel on his show to talk about the legacy of racism in the U.S., and at one point identified the New Deal and the G.I. Bill as examples of policies that lifted up white Americans at the expense of black Americans.
2: When the New Deal deal was was passed, right? When the New Deal was passed, black people were explicitly not allowed to have those loans. When the Homestead Act allowed white people to get an enormous wealth of land and and be able to farm it, black people did not have access to that. Social Security. slaves were freed... When social security came, black people, when the GI Bill, black people were not.
0: Now, it probably goes without saying that the New Deal was by no means perfect or free from discrimination. But the contention that it only benefited white people is false. This isn't the first time that John Stewart has hawked the line that the New Deal was racist. In a conversation with Stephen Colbert in 2020, he said of the New Deal.
2: This is the most progressive piece of legislation that may have ever happened on the soil of America explicitly excluded black.
0: But let's not just single out John. The truth is, he's far from the only person who's repeated this line. In fact, today it's a standard liberal talking point. For instance, last year, Representative Jim Clyburn said FDR's legacy was not good for black people. The New Deal was not fair to black people. In his celebrated article, The Case for Reparations, journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote Roosevelt's New Deal, much like the democracy that produced it, rested on the foundation of Jim Crow. The Rockefeller Foundation, which has an endowment of over $4 billion, claimed the New Deal made America's racial inequality worse. And the political scientist Ira Katz-Nelson has famously called the New Deal a form of, quote, affirmative action for whites. So let's take a look at exactly what people mean when they say these things. Now, before we go further, I have to mention that Touré Reed covers this subject in detail in his excellent book, Toward Freedom. And in case you missed it, Touré has also previously discussed this topic on this very show. So check out that interview if you want an actual historian's perspective. But for now, let's run through some of the main points that people raise when they want to claim the New Deal was racist. One example that always comes up is social security. Social Security, of course, was a signature New Deal program that established a safety net for the elderly and the disabled. But when it was initially signed into law, domestic and agricultural workers were excluded from receiving Social Security benefits. Now, the popular narrative here is that racist Southern Democrats fought to exclude these occupations because they were disproportionately held by Black people, and that Roosevelt eventually gave in to the Southern Democrats' demands. However, it's not actually all that clear that this is what happened. Larry DeWitt, a historian of social security, has gone through the records and found that most of the pressure for excluding farm workers and domestic workers came not from Southern Democrats, but from business lobbies, and in particular, the American Farm Bureau, which argued that paying taxes into the system would be too burdensome. In other words, there's quite a lot of evidence that it was business interests and not racial animus that motivated the carve out of certain workers from social security. What's more is that, although it's true that blacks were disproportionately employed in agricultural and domestic work, they were by no means the majority of workers in these sectors. In fact, whites made up over 74% of all domestic and agricultural workers excluded from Social Security at its outset. So if Social Security was really intended to be a program that boosted whites and simultaneously cut out blacks, it was, to say the least, a pretty ineffective one. But let's look at a part of the New Deal where there was explicit discrimination. John Stewart mentioned the GI Bill and other housing policies, which were designed to grant Americans long term, low interest mortgages in an attempt to expand the homeowning middle class. Here, there's no question that black Americans were routinely subject to racism and exclusion. For example, as many people know, the Federal Housing Administration, which was created under the New Deal, enacted discriminatory policies like redlining, the denial of affordable mortgages to black families, and restrictive covenants that prevented the sale of homes in certain areas to anyone who wasn't white. But it's worth looking at what led to the federal government perpetuating this kind of racial discrimination. Touareg-Reed argues that these policies were less an attempt by New Dealers to cultivate some kind of heronvolk social democracy and more a capitulation to business interests, specifically the real estate and banking industries. As he's noted, during the New Deal, the government actively enlisted the real estate industry to help draft its housing policy. The private real estate sector, of course, had been enacting discriminatory practices well before the New Deal, mainly because it was profitable for them to do so. When real estate leaders were brought into the Federal Housing Administration, they naturally then enshrined their profitable exclusionary practices into federal policy. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that the government was free of blame, but it does suggest that what ultimately limited the reach and transformative potential of the New Deal was its architects' commitment to appeasing business and preserving capitalism, not their commitment to preserving an abstract white supremacy. The reason why this distinction is important is because it helps us actually understand the strengths and limitations of the New Deal, rather than asking us to write off the whole thing as so many liberals seem to want to do. For instance, despite obvious shortcomings in areas like housing policy, there were a number of New Deal programs that were incredibly important for Black workers. Adolf Reed has pointed out that by the end of the 1930s, Blacks were technically overrepresented in certain key New Deal jobs programs. As he notes, while Blacks were roughly 10% of the U.S. population at the time of the New Deal, they made up 15% of the Works Progress Administration, 11% of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and 30% of the Public Works Administration. Now, in all fairness, Black Americans probably should have been represented at even higher percentages within these programs, given that these initiatives were meant to combat poverty and Blacks made up a disproportionate share of people in poverty. But the point here is that A, the New Deal did benefit Black Americans, and B, we should really think about the New Deal as a project that was ultimately incomplete, not as something that was a failure, and certainly not as something that was explicitly designed to entrench white supremacy. In the words of the political scientist Preston Smith, the defensible claim that Blacks did not receive their fair share from the New Deal often morphs into the charge that they did not receive any benefits at all. In other words, the race reductionist criticism of the New Deal goes from racial discrimination to racial exclusion. The slope is admittedly slippery, and race partisans end up discrediting the public goods approach that the New Deal featured during the 1930s and 1940s, rather than zeroing in on the limitations imposed by a resurgent capital. So here's what I think is really going on. When liberals insist that the New Deal was inherently racist, so often their endgame is not to enrich our understanding of history, but rather to cast doubt on the idea that broad-based social policies can ever be truly inclusive. This is just a way of trying to undermine confidence in universal programs and those who advocate for them. Let's not forget that the outpouring of commentary insisting that the New Deal was racist really began anew around the time of the first Bernie Sanders campaign continued through the second and apparently has never stopped. But the fact is that even as imperfect as it was, the New Deal was not only a step forward for working class Americans, including those who were black, but it also laid the foundation for other pivotal reforms that would follow in later decades. As one last example, I'll just mention that New Deal era labor laws, such as the Wagner Act of 1935, changed the terrain of union organizing in the United States in a way that enabled the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a.k.a. the first black labor union to receive official certification to defeat a vicious union busting campaign waged by the Pullman Company and successfully negotiate their first contract. And of course, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, whose members included A. Philip Randolph and E.D. Nixon, among many others, would eventually become a pipeline to the civil rights movement. In other words, when it comes to the New Deal, we can be clear-eyed and critical, but we can't let liberals throw out the baby with the bathwater. So we are now joined by Chris Maizano. He is a Jacobin contributor and a Catalyst Journal board member. His most recent articles are The Liminal Left's Bid for Power, which appears in the new issue of Jacobin, and Is the Labor Movement Back, which is in the new issue of Catalyst? Chris, good to see you.
3: Thanks for having me. Happy to be back.
0: So let's just dive into your articles. Your two recent articles are what you're here to talk about today. And um, I want to start with your Catalyst article, which looks at kind of the state of the labor movement. So obviously, over the last couple of months, um, I think we've really seen a lot of excitement around labor activity, right? Especially at the end of last year, we saw several high-profile strikes at John Deere and Kellogg and, you know, elsewhere. And that led people to calling the month of October striketober. Uh, and then, of course, now we're seeing a lot of re- renewed attention around unionization at Starbucks and in the service sector. And actually, it looks like um, just as of this week, uh, a Staten Island Amazon warehouse has voted to unionize. So there's obviously a lot of, you know, excitement, uh, a lot of attention on labor activity, as I said. And I think you know, kind of paired with that is the fact that we also have polls that show that the public is generally more supportive and more excited for labor than they have been in a long time. But that said, something you point out in your article is that while this is all happening, the uh, the union membership has not only just stagnated, it's basically fallen over the last decade. So, you know, there's kind of a tension going on here, right? How should we make sense of this moment?
3: Sure. Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, exciting things going on, and then uh, but all taking place within the context of sort of the general trends of the last few decades, which um, haven't been great. Um, so yeah, just, just to take a step back for a second. Um, yeah, what I did with this piece uh, was um, uh, I used data that was very generously provided uh, by researchers at Cornell's um, Institute for uh, uh, Labor uh, and Industrial uh, Relations uh, Research. Um, they run a really good strike tracker website, uh, that tracks, um, strikes and, and labor protests all around the country. Uh, it's really a a great tool and a great resource and people should definitely check that out. Um, and what I did was I, I basically took a file, uh, of their data and just took a look at it and, and tried to make sense of what was going on based, based in that, in that data. Um, you know, to make a long story short, uh, yeah, I think a, a few things uh, stood out, uh, for me at least, when, when I took a look at that, that data. Um, the first was that, uh, while yes, there was definitely a, an uptick in um, uh, labor protests and strikes uh, in 2021 compared to um, most uh, years in, in recent memory. Uh, when you compare the, you know, the level of strike action uh, to... Uh, many of the the high points of labor militancy from the twentieth century, you know, it really still pales uh, in in comparison. Um, so from my point of view, you know you calling it a strike wave was probably a little bit of a of a stretch. Uh, def- definitely something of a of a strike ripple compared to uh, recent years. Um, but still, as I said uh, just just before, um, you know it it really does not come close to uh, uh, you know, many of the high points of labor militancy by really any measure, whether you're looking at, um, uh, the number of strikes, uh, the total number of, of participants in strikes, the total number of days lost, uh, the duration of strikes, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's one, one major thing to, to keep in mind. Uh, a second major thing that really jumped out at me was that, um, both labor protests and strikes, and just a quick note on their methodology. Um, they distinguish between protests and strikes based on whether uh, uh, an action stopped work or not. So if something stopped work, they called it a strike. Uh, If something did not stop work, it was called a protest. So just want to mention that. So taking that into account, um, whether you were looking at protests or strikes, um, you know, these actions were very heavily concentrated among already unionized groups of workers. So Mm -hmm. Unionized groups of workers accounted for something like, if memory serves, something like 95 percent of all of the estimated participants in the labor protests Mm -hmm. and something like 98 percent, like almost 100 percent of all of the estimated participants in strikes. So that that really jumped out at me further is that uh, and, you know, this makes sense when you're when you take into account the fact that it's mostly already unionized workers participating in these things. Is that protests and strikes were concentrated by industry,
4: uh,
3: and they tended to be concentrated in industries that, you know, relative to others, you know, have some meaningful degree of, of union organization. Above all, we're talking about healthcare uh, and education, which together accounted for something like sixty uh, percent uh, of all of the the actions um, uh, in, in this in this data. Um, and then related to that, um, related to the industrial concentration, um, another thing that jumped out uh, is the the heavy geographic concentration uh, that really jumps out from the data. Um, you know, there were actions, protests, strikes from all over the country. Um, but if you kind of drill in and, and look at the states uh, where, uh, where where these uh, actions occurred, um, you know you see pretty pretty quickly that, Uh, States like California, New York, Illinois, uh, in particular, uh, which accounted for something like half or more uh, of the total estimated participants in these protests and strikes, um, you know, and then some other states where union density is relatively high. You know, they're accounting for for most of of the actions um, in, in, in this in this data. So in short, what you could say is that, um, you know, collective action in the workplace, whether you're talking about protests that don't stop work or strikes that do stop work, they're by and large taking place where organized labor still retains some residual sources of strength, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's geographically speaking or industrially speaking. And in that kind of context, uh, then spreading this uh, ferment that is undoubtedly out there, spreading these protests, spreading these strikes, uh, beyond their kind of their their current industrial and regional confines is going to depend uh, I think on uh, unionization in new places and mm-hmm. By places I mean both in in terms of industries and uh, in terms of geography
0: I, I want to pause on this question of union density for a minute because um, you know, I think we're really used to kind of looking at union density as sort of a gauge or like a measure of the labor movement in general. And I've recently been hearing some pushback from people who say, you know, well, obviously it's one measure, but it's not everything because, you know, just looking at union density obviously can't capture, you know, non-union activity. Um, it can't capture things like Fight for 15. It can't capture uh, what people are calling the Great Resignation. It obviously doesn't capture labor activities like slowdowns. Um, so and and I think the criticism is that, you know, sort of post Taft-Hartley, uh, it's very difficult to form a union. Right. So I guess the question is, like, why should we still look at union density as a kind of a, a barometer of labor?
3: Yeah, this is a very interesting point. Um, I think that it's certainly not entirely without merit. I, you know, I don't think that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, union density is the only uh, measure of, of working class strength that you you can look at. Um, whether you're talking about the U.S. and, but I think particularly when it comes to other countries, uh, you know, a lot of other countries, for example, have uh, kind of labor relations regimes where. Uh, A worker doesn't necessarily need to be a member of a union in order to be covered by um, a collective bargaining agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, The country that comes to mind in this regard is, uh, is France, Mm. which has a lower level of union density than the U S but the government through various ways extends collective bargaining agreements to basically uh, almost the entire uh, workforce with some exceptions. Um, So, And, and all the other things that you, that you mentioned are, I think certainly, um, you know, true and, and worth taking into account. Uh, but I think especially here in the U S, um, you know, union density is probably, uh, one of the best, if not the best, um, measurement of working class strength and power that we've got. It overlaps almost entirely, uh, with the, uh, rate of collective bargaining coverage, Mm -hmm. um, as I said, there are other countries in the world where those two things kind of can really diverge. But in the U.S., they are more or less the same. Um, and, um, you know, as I argued in the piece and uh, as as others have argued, um, you know, the thing that makes, um, you know, having that union organization so important is uh, the fact that it um, provides an ongoing, uh, you know, kind of permanent uh, organizational vehicle uh, for working people to um assert their interests at work, uh, and in politics, uh, and to engage in various forms of, of collective action. Um, you know, by and large, uh, you know, or unorganized groups of workers, uh, and by unorganized, I mean like without a formal union or, or a collective bargaining agreement, you know, have not been, uh, engaging in strikes. They have not been engaging, uh, in, in labor protests. Obviously you see a lot of things like job switching, uh, Mm um, and, uh, uh, quitting, uh, and what have you, which is, I think something gives you something of a sense of, uh, uh, workers level of confidence, uh, in their ability to find new jobs and to organize, uh, better deals for them uh, or to negotiate better deals for themselves on a, on a, uh, on an individual basis. But when we're thinking about the power of working, of the working class or working people, uh, in kind of more, uh, formally political or institutional terms, Uh, you know, I think that this is probably still, uh, one of, if not the best measurements of, of labor strength. And, you know, if that's, if that's going down, uh, then that's not good. Uh, if it's going up, then, um, that does bode much better for the fortunes of, uh, not just organized workers, but, uh, you know, working people in general,
0: uh, in the US. I want to ask you now about, um, kind of the the protests and the strikes that did happen, uh, because you had mentioned that, you know, something like over 95% of protests and then like a significant number of strikes were basically over within a day, right? I, I think that that's really surprising because- Obviously, a lot of the attention has been on sort of these longer open-ended strikes that happened at the end of last year. So obviously, you know, any strike, any protest is, uh, is a good thing. It's a sign of, you know, workers sort of flexing their power against the boss. Uh, but the fact that the duration of some of these strikes and protests, or should I say the overwhelming majority of these strikes and protests have been so short, uh, what, what does this say about the state of the labor movement right now or about like what unions can and cannot do in this moment?
3: That's a good question, and I think in certain respects, kind of a, a, a kind of a tricky one, mm, yeah. um, because uh, it's probably not the case that longer, open-ended strikes, for example, are necessarily a sign of um, the strength or power of a particular of that particular group of workers that's right. that's out on strike. Uh, it may be a sign of, uh, of desperation, uh, right. of weakness, and of employer power um, in that particular situation. So it can be kind of tricky to sort of suss this out. Uh, and, I, I, and I think that, um, uh, you know, you really have to look at a lot of these things case by case to get a sense of what's actually going on. Um, that being said, though, um, you know, if you look at the data over time, you know, you can see a clear uh, trend uh, in terms of, uh, the decline in, uh, the duration, the size, uh, number of days lost, uh, uh, to, to strike action, uh, et over, over time. And, you know, during the, you can see during the large, the, the high points of, of labor militancy during the 20th century, yeah, those numbers are way up and, you know, it makes sense. It's like, if you've got huge numbers of workers going in on strike, um, they're going in on strike, uh, for, uh, especially for issues that don't necessarily have to do with like routine, uh, subjects of collective bargaining, but have to, you know, touch on questions of like, uh, uh, of, uh, the, the organization of work kind of managerial prerogatives, things like that. Yeah. Those strikes are going to go on, uh, mm-hmm. for a longer period of time. Um, so I think generally, yes, it's probably not great that, um, Uh, the trend has been towards shorter and shorter and shorter uh, strikes and protests, um, for sure. Um, You know, one flip side, potentially, of that is, like, hey, if the workers are well enough organized and they're strategically uh, uh, located enough in a a workplace or in a production process or whatever the case may be, that, you know, they could just kind of blow the whistle for 20 minutes uh, and, uh, you know, get somebody somebody reinstated or, you know, get a couple extra bucks because they're taking on additional work or whatever the case may be, then, you know, kind of the quickness of of the action may may speak to their, their strength. Um, but yeah, I think I think in general that yeah, and, and you can see it if you look at the historical data, the, the very clear kind of secular decline in uh, duration, in size of strikes, etc. Yeah, I think really does uh, point to the the erosion um, of the strike weapon uh, mm-hmm. of as as a, a source of labor power uh, in the United States.
0: All right. Well, I want to bring in your Jacobin article now, because I do think that there are some sort of like interesting points of overlap between your catalyst piece and your Jacobin piece. And specifically, you know, something we talk about on the show quite a lot is the class composition of the left today, which you had alluded to um in in some of your earlier remarks. And, you know, obviously what we're looking at is the various ways in which the current left, the actually existing left, is unfortunately in many ways disconnected, not just from the labor movement, but from the broader working class in general. And what I mean by that is, you know, compared to the general population, the left today is really like disproportionately college educated or what we might call middle class or professional managerial class. Right. And, you know, there's obviously been a lot of good writing and thinking about how this can be a liability or a limitation. Uh, and I think that's something that was really interesting about your article is you point out that it's not actually always that cut and dry. So a lot of DSA members, um, you know, writers for Jacobin, you yourself uh, and and, you know, this kind of new crop of progressive politicians that are now running for office Uh, you argue are part of what you might call the liminal left. So um, I really liked that term. Uh, Explain what you meant by that and why this distinction is useful.
3: Um, Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, the the article that I wrote for the most recent print issue of Jacobin is uh, just a short review of what I thought was a pretty good book uh, by a a writer named David Friedlander. It's called The AOC Generation. And, yeah, it's just like a very you know, kind of breezy journalistic look at, um, uh, you know, th- th- this kind of rising uh, younger new left uh, that's uh, come onto the scene in the U.S. over the past few years. Obviously, AOC herself is kind of the main focus mm-hmm. um, of the book, and he follows her, her career um, um, through the course of this book. Uh, but he also talks about, you know, DSA, Jacobin, uh, uh, and many other uh, expressions of this kind of uh, new left-wing ferment uh, that's uh, cropped up in the U.S., particularly in the wake of Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. And uh, as I said in the review, um, you know, he doesn't really draw it out very explicitly. But when you read the book, and at least I was definitely struck by this. What you what you find is that a lot of the individuals that he's talking about or profiling in the book occupy this kind of very sort of like in between sort of space socially. Um, um, You know, in a lot of cases, it's the children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. In a lot of cases, it's, um, uh, you know, working class or or middle class kids who um, uh, are going to elite educational institutions, but in many cases are like the first person in their family to go to college, right? Right. And still have like extensive, um, you know, social, familial, et cetera, ties to... You know, kind of a, a non-elite world, like back right. in their family or back in their old neighborhood. Um, you know, I can definitely relate to this myself. You know, I, I did not go to a, a super elite institution. I went to Rutgers in New Jersey, a state school. Uh, I went to the, the campus in Camden, New Jersey, which is, you know, one of America's poorest cities. And it was a very eye-opening experience to, to, to go to school in that kind of place for me. Um, but you know, first person in my family to go to college in, in my immediate family. Um, and, uh, you know, and I've gone on to do things like write for Jackman and what have you. And yeah, is reading the, reading the book, I could relate, uh, in yeah. a lot of respects to like, uh, this sort of in between or neither nor or both and sort of social location, uh, that, uh, a lot of the folks, um, profiled in the book. Um, but that you also run into like in the real world, uh, who are involved in organizing or involved in, uh, intellectual work, uh, also come out of, um, and I thought that was really striking. And I think, um, in a lot of ways, kind of indicative of, and, uh, kind of a continuation of, uh, what I think is a long standing kind of, uh, trend or, um, situation on the left where... Yeah, it's like if you look throughout you, you know the history of the left, both in the U.S. and many other places, you you find a lot of people who, um, you know, occupied this kind of uh this kind of social position, uh, or you know, kind of uh, caught between worlds or have a foot in two worlds or three worlds. Although that metaphor, people don't have three feet typically, uh, <laughs> but you get but you get my point. So yeah. you know, the, so um, I thought that was really interesting, and I think that that kind of um situation really uh you know captures a lot of what defines um you know this kind of this younger new left in the united states but also if you look at many other countries particularly in the kind of rich capitalist world um uh these these sorts of uh younger newer left-wing formations and movements are drawing on an extremely similar kind of social move um so what's going on here um you know, to a significant extent, I think that this reflects, um, you know, structural uh, dynamics uh, that have been, uh, you know, defining and redefining uh, social, economic, political, cultural life uh, in, in these countries over the last 40 years. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that has been going on in that regard is just this massive expansion of higher education mm-hmm. that's occurred in the U.S. and uh, in you know, every similar country that you can think of, Um, and kind of a a, a pretty substantial educational upgrading uh, of the workforce. So, you know, while it's certainly true that taken uh, in aggregate, uh, for example, the the workforce, uh, you know, the the level of educational attainment in the workforce as a whole, um, you know, uh, still only a minority uh, of the, uh, of the workforce has, you know, a batch has received a bachelor's degree or above, you know, this has a really, really strong um, age gradient, which is yeah. to say that the younger you go, um, the more likely it is that, um, you know, the working people that you're looking at uh, are going to have college degrees or mm-hmm. even higher than that. Um, I just looked at the the census data on this, uh, just this morning and, uh, yeah, for working people that have come into the the workforce, um, uh, in, since 2010 or later, nearly half of that cohort has at least a bachelor's degree or higher. So we're Hmm. talking at least a bachelor's degree or a math, uh, uh, at least a bachelor's degree. So many, and many of those people are also going to have masters or professional degrees or doctorates. Almost half. And, you know, that, that proportion is just going to keep going up, uh, most likely, um, you know, as as the years go by. Certainly, if you look at cohorts of older workers, then that proportion is, is, is much lower. Right. So, um, yes, the point here is that, taken as a whole, you know, this question of, of kind of class composition, which often gets conflated with um, educational attainment for mm-hmm. you know some good reasons you know I think it, it can often serve as a useful proxy for for class. Um, you know would, it, it shows you that yeah, if we have a left that is um, uh, uh, disproportionately highly credentialed and what have you, then that's going to put people in a position that may may well put them uh, I don't know outside of the, the range of uh, may make it more difficult for them to, uh, reach out to, work with, um, uh, organize with people that aren't operating in the same kinds of uh, uh, social milieus. Uh, but at the same time, it's, um, you know, the, the, if, you, if you kind of break that down a little bit more, uh, I think the story becomes a, a little bit more complicated. Uh, and, uh, you know, especially when you're looking at among younger workers uh, in particular, you um, You know, like I said, about something like half uh, of of the workers coming into the workforce these days have college degrees or even higher than that. Um, So, so I think it's a it's it's kind of a complicated um, uh, sort of story in that respect. Um, Also, um, it's you know sometimes you know you encounter the argument that um, this kind of cohort of of people, uh, you know, younger. Uh, you know, highly educated uh, uh, people kind of have have interests uh, in opposition to um, uh, you know people in other sections or sectors segments of the working class. Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I do think that um, there are both kinds of cultural, um, things that, you know, might make it kind of challenging just in practice to kind of organize with, relate to, work with people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a dilemma that I think people have to deal with as they're, as they're doing their organizing. But, um, in terms of, of interests or politics or things like that, you know, I don't, I don't know if I, I if I agree that that, that that's necessarily the case. Uh, you right. know, I don't think that argument necessarily holds a ton of water. You know, if you look at voting behavior, if you look at, um, you know, opinion surveys, uh, et cetera, you know, this cohort in the U.S. uh, and in a lot of other countries has, in many respects, quite left-wing politics. And not just on kind of the dimension of what you might call, you know, social or cultural issues, also has, you know, rather left-wing politics on questions of the welfare state, uh, on unionization, what have you. Uh, And in many respects, it's, you know, these sorts of people, uh, this kind of cohort of people that are taking the lead um, in, um, you know, a lot of the labor organizing that's going on. You know, if you look at Starbucks, for example, it seems like, uh, at least from what I can gather from uh, the reporting uh, and other things that I've seen, that, yeah, a number of the workers that are really taking the lead in these sorts of campaigns uh, to organize these Starbucks shops are younger pretty well educated workers mm-hmm. um, who are um, who got drawn into union organizing because they were activated by something like say the Bernie Sanders campaigns right uh, or, or left-wing politics in general. So I, I think that while this sort of the, the, the rise of this kind of um, uh, new cohort of people that really didn't quite exist in a lot of our societies like a, a few decades ago, um, poses some dilemmas in terms of uh, in terms of uh, you know creating kind of broadly uh, based political coalitions that span as much of the working class as possible. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there is like a necessary contradiction there
4: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, at all. Uh, and I, I worry that if we, we get into uh, uh, thinking that there is, then you know that could be that could be self defeating and self limiting. Right um and if it makes people feel any better the left in and basically every similar country is dealing with the same exact dilemma right uh so uh you know this is not not something that is particularly uh, uh
4: american. it's not partic-
3: it's not particularly american it's not limited to this this country it's it's something that uh you know we find on the left uh everywhere you look uh, particularly in the rich uh, rich capitalist world at the moment
0: So maybe then let's wrap up on this question. Um, Given everything you've laid out uh, regarding, you know, uh, where the labor movement is right now, what some of the pitfalls and limitations are, and then also like what the left or what left organizing looks like now and like what the class composition of the left looks like now. um, I guess the final question for you is where do you see the most promise today for reconnecting the left with labor and kind of moving the labor movement forward?
3: Yeah. Great question. I mean, I guess we could start from, uh, what, what seems to be kind of catching on right now. Uh, and you know, that seems to be, uh, some of these organizing campaigns, particularly in, in service and, and retail, uh, where a lot of, um, um, People uh, who are younger, uh, who have some education, but for one reason or or another have found themselves in these sorts of employment situations have taken lead in organizing. So, you know, just over the past few months, we've seen a number of uh, Starbucks uh, shops uh, hold and win uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board election Mm -hmm. uh, campaigns, uh, which is great. Uh, Obviously, that's not the end of the story. They now have to go and try to bargain a first contract with Starbucks, which is going to be tough. Uh, And, you know, if it's just kind of a handful of small shops encountering this corporate behemoth with all kinds of resources to stall, to to cajole, to do whatever it can do to forestall the the actual bargaining of a first contract – you know, then they're going to have some trouble. So, uh, you know, it's important that that, that momentum carries forward, uh, more, more groups of workers in say Starbucks keep, you know, holding and, 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 winning union elections or organizing through other means, uh, if they can, uh, if that makes sense for them in their situation. And I do think that organizations like say DSA, uh, and others on the left can play an important role in, in helping to kind of push that process along. Um, you know, recently DSA, um, uh, adopted a, uh, a campaign to support Starbucks organizing, uh, and people should, if they're interested in uh, checking that out and learning more about what's going on, they should they should go and look at that. Um, so that's one. Um, another is, um, you know, we've just seen this this week. It looks like uh, today the workers uh, at uh, one of the Amazon warehouses uh, out on Staten Island are going to win a union election which is humongous, uh, you know, that'll be if uh, the, 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 the trend in the vote count holds, um, that'll be the first victorious union election at, a, at a Amazon um, in the U.S. Um, the same, same, same deal applies here. If, you know, it's only one, two, three, a handful of sites win elections and then try to bargain a first contract with Amazon, they're going to run into a lot of tr- trouble. Uh, uh, Amazon has a lot of power. They have a lot of resources to, you know, just try to, to not <laughs> ever bargain a first contract, which is something that employers in the United States can get away with. Um, so, again, it's incumbent on the left, broadly speaking, to do what it can to try to keep pushing that process forward uh, in Amazon in particular, but in a lot of other uh, sorts of settings. Um, and I think that's really important to try to kind of spill Momentum that we've seen in, say, like service and retail over into you know logistics and uh, you know other kinds of, say, more industrial, more blue collar kinds of work because, by and large, at least so far, it seems like a lot of this firm has been largely in in retail uh, service and things like that. So, definitely need to keep pushing that process forward. Uh, And then, you know, the the third thing I would say is, uh, you know, at least in my reading, a lot of the explanation or a good chunk of the explanation for why we're starting to see uh, a rise in favorability towards unions uh, and you know, actual attempts, real attempts uh, to organize unions uh, kind of in the, in, in the belly of, of, of the American private sector capitalist beast here um, has been the growth of, of a political left in the United States. Uh, You know, the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, the growth Mm -hmm. of DSA, the growth of other organizations, uh, and just kind of the general um, shift or drift um, to the left that we see among, um, you know, younger workers in particular. I think that's been really important in changing people's consciousness. Um, giving them kind of a generally pro-labor, pro-union view of the world and encouraging them to take action uh, where, where they can. So in that sense, I think continuing to build those sorts of left-wing political and democratic socialist organizations is really important. Electing more people to office who are going to use their offices to both, you know, pound the table and use it as a bully pulpit to preach pro-union ideas, uh, but then also do what they can to try to promote organization Uh, through their offices especially when we're talking about the private sector that's a little tougher because private sector uh labor relations are in laws enshrined at the federal level and it's proven itself extremely difficult to get pro-labor federal uh labor law reform at that level um but there are things that i think um um People in office, kind of at lower levels, state, local, etc., could do uh, to try to use their offices, to use legislation, to use moral suasion, to use the bully pulpit, to try to you know push this process forward, promote unionization, and and continue the momentum. And just to kind of complete the circle here, that's going to be really important uh, because if you know this ferment doesn't uh, result in you know new organization. In you know new unions, new labor organizations that have some degree of institutionalization, that have some degree of permanence, uh, it's entirely possible that this kind of, that this recent ferment that we're seeing, this uh, hopefully the beginning stages of a of a of a, something of a reorganization of working people in the United States, it could, it could easily peter out um, if it's not captured, if it's not organized, if it's not institutionalized and, and made more permanent. So doing those things is all really important. Um, and, you know, the good thing I would say is, like, it seems like an organizer's paradise out there right now. So yeah. if, uh, if uh, for well, for better or worse, right? Um, right? It seems like an organizer's paradise out there. So if you're someone who's interested in uh, helping push this process forward, uh, either at your where it is that you work at or if you are someone who, um, uh, isn't necessarily in that situation, but is looking for something, uh, to do. Um, there's all kinds of opportunities out there. Um, so yeah, get in in touch with your friendly, uh, neighborhood, uh, (laughs) socialists and, and labor activists. There's plenty to do.
0: All right. Again, Chris's recent articles are the liminal left's bid for power. That's in the new issue of Jacobin and is the labor movement back, which is in Catalyst. We will be linking both of those articles below. I highly recommend them. Uh, Chris, thanks again for your time.
3: Of course. Thanks again for having me.